0: Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Stephen Liu and Dr. Nargis Duma. Hello and welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. This is Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute.
1: And this is Dr. Stephen Liu, Director of Thoracic Oncology at Georgetown University. In this episode of Lung Cancer Considered, we review some of the highlights from ASCO 2022. For that, we are joined by two expert thoracic oncologists to help review some of these data and offer their own perspective. First, I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Jack West an Associate Professor in the Department of Medical Oncology at City of Hope, and the Vice President of Network Strategy for Access Hope. You may know Dr. West as well as the first host of the IASLC podcast. Jack, thanks for
2: joining us. That's my pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: It is quite the pressure for you and I, Stephen, having Jack here <laughs> recording the podcast. <laughs> we are also joined by Dr. Catherine Shu, Associate Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of the Thoracic Medical Oncology Service, at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. Kathy, we're glad to have you with us today.
3: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Let's start with some data that you delivered in the oral sessions describing amimantubab and lacertinib in EGFR mutant no small cell lung cancer. Can you recap the presentation for us?
3: Sure. So I presented some updated results from Chrysalis II, which... Is a study of amivantamab and lazertinib in patients with EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer after progression on osimertinib and platinum-based chemo. It's a mouthful, but amivantamab is an EGFR-met bispecific antibody, and lazertinib is a third-generation EGFR TKI. And we looked at this combination in patients with EGFR mutations who had progressed both on osimertinib and chemotherapy. And I think the important kind of bottom line result is that out of 162 patients, the response rate was 33% with the median duration of response of 9.6 months, a median PFS of 5.1 months and overall survival of 14.8 months. And I would say in general, the combination was well tolerated. There were no new kind of safety signals from what we've seen with amivantamab previously. Probably the most important thing, though, is that rash continues to be a main issue. I think when we look at cumulative group kind of rash-related AEs, we saw rash in about 80% of the patients with 17 of them with grade 3 or higher AEs, which is about 10%. But I think those were kind of the, the most important results that I presented.
1: Kathy, hmm? you have a lot of experience with this drug, obviously, and I agree that you know I find rash to be sort of the most relevant toxicity. But yeah. a lot of our colleagues are a little more focused in on the infusion reactions, which did occur in about two-thirds of patients. What's your experience with that, been?
3: Yeah, so I think we've learned a lot since starting to give amivantimab more. We know that the infusion-related reaction really tends to happen with that first infusion. And really, after that first infusion, we seldom see it. Now, we've also gotten much better at dealing with that first infusion. So, for example, I give my patients steroids, Tylenol, Benadryl, and normally an H2 blocker as well for that first dose. And I think now we've gotten a lot better at dealing with it. So even though, yes, I think it's 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 a real thing, I don't think that should deter anyone from giving the drug.
1: Now, this is a, a huge space, right? EGFR, mutant lung cancer, this was, I would argue, our, our first major success in targeted therapy. It's been the POSTER trial, and we know the most about resistance. But you know, in the past couple of years, it's kind of been eclipsed by our outcomes in some of these other targeted agents, like ALK, where we see PFS in three, maybe five years even Jack, your thoughts on this space and this as an option and maybe what you'd consider standard in this setting?
2: Well, I think you brought up a great point, and that is that we've had tremendous success. I mean, when you can go back more than two decades now since the first EGFR TKIs came on the scene and really ushered in a new era of molecular oncology and lung cancer that has really flourished. But Osimertinib first line was, I think, the last big quantum leap for us. That's going back to 2017. And it's interesting, I saw a patient just in the last week or so who started on it right after the approval and is only now starting to face acquired resistance and and the need for change. And it's frustrating that in that now approaching five-year period, we really haven't had The advances that we'd like. This is, I think, among the biggest leads that we've had. We still struggle with when to pursue more targeted therapy versus a chemo-based approach and whether immunotherapy has a role or not. And we will get more information. But I would say that what we would love to do is be able to use this combination of amivantumab and luzertinib if we could, but you know, the, it's not approved in this setting. These trials are very attractive, but what I would say is has been the standard of care is chemo doublet, you know, typically something like carbopemtrixide, with or without pembrolizumab or potentially the Empower One Hundred and Fifty regimen, and we still struggle, uh, really feel some angst about whether that's the best approach or whether we should be continuing with osimertinib or another EGFR-based therapy, particularly in patients with significant CNS disease, because osimertinib and other EGFR-directed therapies have really given us so much more confidence about controlling the brain and the threat of CNS progression. So, I think this is really attractive. We can look forward to advances in the first-line setting and potentially this combination being studied in the Mariposa trial, directly comparing the doublet here to osimertinib, and you know we'll also have the Flora Two trial results sometime in the, the upcoming year, I believe, and that's with directly testing chemo such as carbopametrexid specifically with osimertinib. So we will ultimately break this impasse we've been at for five years.
1: Yeah, I share your frustration. Hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, some of the newer agents, you know, directa can showing a little bit of efficacy. amavantamab
2: Agree, uh, yeah. Hopefully,
1: we'll see more there. You know, amivantimab, as you mentioned, is a bispecific antibody targeting EGFR and MET. And, you know, we saw another oral presentation by our colleague from across the pond, Dr. Matt Krebs, looking at chrysalis in amavantamab with MET exon-14, non-small cell lung cancer. I wonder what your thoughts were on that study.
2: It was certainly encouraging. We see that as you mentioned, Amvantamab is a bispecific antibody that targets EGFR and MET, so it made sense to be studying this specifically in patients with MET exon 14 skipping mutation. This was 55 patients presented, and in that cohort, the response rate was 33% and notably in the treatment naive group of patients, that subset had a response rate that was notably higher at 57% Those who had already received a prior med inhibitor had a response rate of 17%, so lower. But on the other hand, still seeing meaningful activity in a previously treated population, I think, should give us some guarded encouragement. The median progression-free survival was 6.7 months overall, but hadn't been reached in the treatment-naive subset of patients. And following up on one of the themes that we've already touched on, infusion reactions in just over two thirds, sixty nine percent of patients, about a third of patients, thirty one percent had rash, and pneumonitis or ILD was seen in a very small minority, four percent. Edema was was noted in twenty percent of patients, but it was not grade three or higher in in any of that group. So I think it's encouraging, and I think the biggest question is just how to prioritize the various options we have for this population?
0: Thank you, Jack, for adding that. In my experience with amivantimab, I think the reaction is seen mostly with the first cycle, and I use the same thing that Cathy does for pre-medication. But I think what really has helped me with the reaction is educating the patients on what to expect, as well as nurses, because our infusion nurses are getting used to this compound, and we don't have this large number of patients. So, I always call the nurse right before the infusion and say, this is what may happen. So I think that helps a lot is the education to the patient and nursing staff, right? Or starting, as we were discussing the results. Go ahead, Kathy. No,
3: no, no, sorry. I was going to say, I totally agree with that. I should have said the most important thing really is telling the patient like, hey, this is something that may happen, but we have a lot of experience and we know what to do. And we're now giving you pre-medications. But if you experience you know, flushing or chest pain or shortness of breath or anything, you know, tell your nurse right away. And I think that that really has helped people, you know, when it's something that's not unexpected, it's much less scary.
0: Yeah. And I think I have heard somewhere that the formulation may change to subcutaneous in the future. So that's something to look forward to. So Kathy, as we continue to talk about this, can you put this data in context for us? We have TKI's approved in this space already. Is there a degree of efficacy that's exciting? How do you see going in, the, in practice?
3: Yeah. So, you know, like Jack mentioned, there are certain AEs that we see with they, you know, A lot of them tend to be EGFR and MET kind of uh, associated AEs. So things like rash, you know, the diarrhea is a little bit better. In terms of the Met side effects, we're seeing, we still see things like edema, but the level of edema is better than in some of the, uh, Met exon 14 approved TKs like topot and Ketmatinib. So I think the AE profile is a little bit different. However, I think the formulation is probably the most striking thing to me. You know, if you ask a patient if they can take a pill every day or have to come in for an IV infusion, I think people will be pretty clear about their preferences. You know, the downside about amivantimab is just that I think the infusion schedule is pretty hard on patients. You have to come in day one, day two, day eight, day 15, day 22. And then, you know, after that, then it becomes every two weeks. But in the beginning, it's quite time intensive. And the first couple infusions are very long. So I think that, you know, for me, I'm really still more interested in giving ketmatinib and potenib first. And then it's interesting to see their data for, you know, patients with prior metinibition.
1: These are great points. And a lot of things go into choosing which drug is right for specific patients. These are discussions we have all the time. When we think of a different target, EGFR-exon 20 insertions, we know we have amavantamab approved in that setting. We have Mobocertinib, an oral agent, also approved there. We heard at ASCO 2022, our colleague from Memorial, Dr. Helena Yu, present some data on a new EGFR inhibitor, CLN081. I thought these were pretty interesting. Kathy, can you give us your opinion on this data?
3: Yeah, so Dr. Yu's presentation was was very interesting. This was a dose escalation trial the population was heavily pretreated, including 36% who had received a prior EGFR TKI. And as they escalated the dose, they found that 150 milligrams twice a day was actually not well tolerated. So they ended up expanding at 100 milligrams BID. And at 100 milligrams BID, where there were 39 patients, they saw a rash in 82%, but no grade three diarrhea in 36%, but again, no grade three, and only a 5% discontinuation rate due to toxicity. So that's nice to see. Although I think for everyone who's treated patients with rash, we always have to be cautious when we say, oh, no, grade three, because we all know that grade two rash can still be, you know, a daily grade two rash can still be really tough for patients. So I just throw that caveat out there. And then in terms of response rate, the ORR was 41% the median duration of response of greater than 21 months. Median time to treatment response was short. It was one and a half months. The median PFS was 12 months. And they did note one intracranial response and um, out of three patients with CNS target lesions. So I was, I was impressed with the data and I look forward to seeing this drug uh, hopefully in practice.
0: Jack, what are your impressions about this new agent? You know, the sample size was small. What would you think we'd see next about CLN801?
2: I think it certainly has activity and it may find a place, but as we've been talking about with other relatively small subsets, small pieces on the of the pie graph that we have, I the pie chart, I think that It will be hard for it to find its place alongside the agents we already have for this indication that people may be getting more comfort and experience with. I would also really underscore Kathy's point that I think we should, particularly with targeted therapies or immunotherapy, that is, our goal is to give this on a very longitudinal basis. I think we should change our threshold for just reporting and focusing on grade three or higher toxicities because it's really different when we are talking about whether it's rash or diarrhea or various other adverse effects, nausea, even edema. Any of these, I think, are amplified when we are talking about giving these treatments longitudinally for months and months or a year or more. I think that, we should really be thinking about toxicity as something closer to an area under the curve thing where it's a a product of both the severity and duration. And many of our toxicity concepts, I think, are from an era decades old when the treatments were for a very time-limited duration that was perhaps acceptable for weeks to months at a time, and then you had them resolve and moved on. But that's, that's different now. So, I think that we should have different hopes or expectations for a therapy that we intend or hope to give for a long period of time to our patients.
0: Thank you, Jack. You know, ASCOs follow a lot of updates, but immunotherapy data continues to still have a place at ASCO. Dr. Karen Redkamp presented data from the LOP MAP match study S1800A, a randomized phase two study or ramizurumab plus pembrolizumab versus chemotherapy for patients with no small cell lung cancer after immunotherapy. Can you review the study for us and also share your thoughts about how this may have a place in subsequent lines of therapy in
2: this patient population? Sure, happy to do that. I'd start by saying that the lung map trial as a, an iterative ongoing process testing many different clinical questions in previously treated patients is very novel and has screened and now treated thousands of patients across north america so i think that's something that we should step back and give some credit to to swog for developing and implementing so successfully and this is one of the early places where it's really borne fruit i will say also that some of the negative results Still provide value by asking and answering a valuable question quickly, which is, I think, an important part of what we should be doing. So it's great when trials are positive, but even if we can rapidly test questions and definitively say no is the answer, that's a benefit. But this was one that was really very encouraging. It included patients who received PD1 or PDL1 inhibitor therapy along with chemo either sequentially or concurrently, and had progression at least 84 days after starting therapy. So, this was a somewhat, presumably, immunotherapy-sensitive population, and these patients had to be eligible for ramucirumab. A total of 136 patients were randomized to either pembrolizumab with ramucirumab or a chemo, essentially dealer's choice approach that was docetaxel and ramucirumab in the majority of patients, which I think is great because that really reflects our best therapy option, at least in, in terms of the strongest data. And the overall survival favored the recipients of PEMBRO with ramucirumab. Specifically, the numbers were 14.5 months median versus 11.6 months median with uh, chemo. Hazard ratio is 0.69 and it was actually comparable across the strata for PDL1 expression interestingly the progression free survival was not significantly different the median pfs was 4.5 months with pembrolizumab 5.2 months on the chemo arm hazard ratio 0.86 there also wasn't a clear difference in response rate it was just 22% with pembrolizumab 28 percent with chemo but the duration of the responses was far longer in the patients who got pembrolizumab. the duration median was 12.9 months with pembrolizumab, compared to 5.6 months median with chemo and the toxicity profile and this should really not be a surprise to any of us who have been doing this for long enough that knowing that we give second line chemo, especially docetaxel-based, somewhat through gritted teeth. It has the efficacy, but, but it can be challenging for many patients, and the toxicity, which was largely hematologic, was greater on the chemotherapy arm. So I think this result generated a lot of interest and speculation about whether this is ready for prime time, and I think that's really where the debate is. It's, it's provocative, to be sure. The question is how far we should take randomized phase two trial data.
0: Thank you, Jack, for summarizing. And I think as you talk, there is still, you know, we're still learning a space for EGFR after osimertinib. I think this is still another area we continue to learn, which is what happens after PEMBRO. Our patients are living longer, so we're trying to find new therapies. So, Kathy, were you impressed by this data that was presented by Dr. Redkamp?
3: Yes, so I was. And I guess I should start also by just giving credit to the investigators. There was a simultaneous publication in JCO and really nice to see, like Jack was saying, that Lung Map has done so well and has really helped investigators answer a broad variety of questions. I liked seeing the toxicity profile. It was again like Jack was saying, the chemo toxicity we all know. I think alopecia with chemotherapy is not something that we should overlook. It's oftentimes one of those things we kind of mention, but but my patients are, you know, really affected by it. So I like seeing the tox profile of pembro but I guess there are some questions for me still. You know, there's no clear biomarker right now, and it would be interesting to know which patients benefit from angiogenesis inhibition. The same thing with the, uh, the phase two, you know, it's not, for me, this means that we need a phase three. It's not quite practice changing in my mind just yet, but I think it also brings up good questions, you know, is for these immunotherapy trials, what's, what's the right endpoint and is OS the right endpoint, if especially when we're seeing benefits in OS, but, you know, no clear benefit in response rate and PFS. So I think all of these were really provocative questions that the authors kind of bring forward. And I hope that this will someday become an option in our clinic, because I think a lot of people could benefit from it.
1: I think that when you see a hazard ratio for survival of 0.69, that is certainly below our threshold for impact. But it seemed like the data were not as well received as one might have predicted. And I think that speaks to our recognition over time that post-immunotherapy that space is really complicated. It's really heterogeneous. There are some where there's sort of clear progression, but on occasion, there might be a single spot where we see a little bit of growth. We radiate that area and those patients continue to do well for quite some time. Maybe there's some atypical response pattern. So as we see more drugs move into this space, I think defining IO refractory, IO resistant is, is going to be increasingly important. You know, Jack, anything to add regarding this study and how it was received?
2: Well, I think... It is appropriate to have some debate about it. These are commercially available drugs, but I personally feel that it is premature to adopt this as a new standard of care based on a trial with about 65 patients per arm or thereabouts. We have seen over the last couple of decades many many remarkably encouraging phase two trials that have failed to be corroborated by the broader phase three experience and i think that that should be humbling and the fact that this is such a readily pursuable trial to complete as a phase three experience should make us patient to see if we see that again supported the fact is that It did show somewhat discordant results between some of the other efficacy endpoints, PFS and response rate were not elevated the way that overall survival was. So I would be inclined to say, this is great. I'm encouraged. We have the trial that is looking at this as a proper phase three, and let's just wait until we see those results before adopting this very broadly, because the implications for cost and potential harm of choosing incorrectly based on what is still a relatively small trial, I think loom large here.
0: Thank you, Jack, for your perspective. And I'm right there with you. I think, you know, we have learned, and specifically what we're going to talk about next, is that phase three data still remains the standard to approve therapy, Many of us have used RAM and, you know, we know the consequences of using the therapy and these patients are going to be highly pretreated. So I think moving with caution is what I, we probably do. So now we're going to move to the small cell space. And of course, we have to talk about Skyscraper 2. It was a phase three study looking at targeting digit. This was presented by Dr. Charlie Rubin. Kathy, can you tell us about this trial and what were your thoughts?
3: Sure. So, the skyscraper was a phase three study in first-line extensive stage small cell. And all the patients received kind of that Empower 133 regimen of carboplatin, etoposide, and atezolizumab. And then they were randomized to tiragolumab, which is the anti-tigit agent versus placebo. And Tigit is a novel like immune checkpoint present on many on immune cells in many cancers, including small cell. And so tiragolumab is an anti-Tigit monoclonal antibody that everyone has been excited about. Unfortunately, the study was a negative study. There was no improvement seen in PFS. There was no improvement seen in OS. You know, there were no concerning safety signals and the outcomes were consistent with prior reports. So the mean overall survival in the placebo arm was 13.6, and in the tiragolamab arm was also 13.6 months. So I think the study did allow patients with untreated brain metastases, and there was still benefit seen there. But overall, the addition of tiragolamab to that combination of atezo and chemo did not provide any further benefit in PFS or OS. So I think that the study will continue to the kind of the planned primary OS analysis and the biomarker analyses are kind of ongoing, but based on these data, doesn't seem like TIGIT is a good, mar- or is a good target for extensive stage small cell lung cancer.
0: Jacks, yeah, you know, the results were quite sad, but we knew about a little bit from the press release When you saw more data at ASCO, what were your thoughts?
2: Honestly, I would say it may may not be cold and dead yet, but it's dead. And I think that this is really, I would say, a definitively or a very close to definitively negative result. And I I give Dr. Rudin credit for being so transparent about what he felt were just disappointing results and the need to move on. So I think it is extremely unlikely that this particular question is going to be revived. I think the bigger question, and Kathy appropriately was circumspect in, in her comments here, is you know, is what does this mean for A, tiragolamab, or B, TIGIT as a target outside of this particular setting? We've also heard some Disappointing early results in a press release about skyscraper one and in the non small cell setting. And I'm not optimistic about that. So, how broadly should we extrapolate this and what we can anticipate, what we can anticipate for TIGIT in lung cancer and in other settings? I would say that we have seen as a general concept that a lot of our more effective immunotherapies are broadly active, extremely active in many different settings. So I think this portends a need to modulate our level of optimism and enthusiasm for TIGIT in many settings in lung cancer and beyond.
1: I think it's pretty clearly a negative study, Jack. I completely agree with you. And I'll go even further that you know, while we'll follow it, I don't think there's really any way those survival curves could split. I really think that it's just a hypothesis that has been definitively answered, uh, not in the way we wanted, but clearly a a very negative study. So we'll see if that holds true in other diseases. You know, I think we have time for one more. Jack, we saw updated results from the CRYSTAL1 study by uh, Dr. Alexander Spira with simultaneous publication in the New England Journal of Medicine.
2: Can you walk us through the results of that study? Sure. Very Interesting, and of course, any time you get a simultaneous publication in the New England Journal of Medicine, it, it has implications. This was a phase two study in patients with KRAS G twelve C positive non small cell lung cancer. Nearly all of these patients had received prior immunotherapy and and chemotherapy, and this was a trial done in throughout twenty twenty. So, in the the really just in the eye of the storm with the pandemic, so they get some credit for getting the trial completed with over 100 patients. And this looked at, at aggressive at 60, I'm sorry, 600 milligrams twice a day, and had an encouraging response rate of 43%. That's just the evaluable patients and significant minority, I think 17 had dropped out without eligibility, uh, you know, for, for evaluation based on stopping before the uh, confirmatory scans, et cetera, But response rate in evaluable patients, disease control rate of 80%, time to response was 1.4 months, so really the first scan opportunity, and the duration of response median was 8.5 months, median PFS 6.5 months, and a median overall survival of 12.6 months. So all encouraging, and there was also an intracranial response rate of 33% in this Cohort. There was a separate cohort of uh, patients, 25 patients with previously untreated intracranial disease who were who received adagrasib, who were presented by Dr. Joshua Sabari at ASCO as well. And together, these trial these reports really highlighted that there is meaningful potential efficacy for brain metastases uh, with this agent. Now, treatment related adverse effects led to dose reduction in 52%. So really questions about whether this is an optimal dose. And I believe the company is working on a different formulation that is a tablet instead of a capsule and perhaps refining the dose. But at the end of the day, discontinuation for toxicity was just 7%. So it looks encouraging. The New England Journal paper certainly speaks to its credibility as one more option. And I think the biggest question is when you have SodorAciB available and we have some growing experience with it for essentially the same population, where does it fit in?
0: Thank you, Jack, for your thoughts. I think, you know, the more agents we develop for certain mutations, I always have the hope that we reduce the price. We haven't seen that, (laughs) but I don't lose hope. We can lose hope. So, Kathy, what were your thoughts on the impact of the CRYSTAL-1 study, not only in your practice, but what do you see in the future for this compound?
3: Yeah, I definitely agree with you about the price. And I would say, you know, those numbers that Jack just mentioned, I mean, if you look at the soda acid numbers, Code Break 100, they, they're all fairly similar, you know the response rates fairly similar. Atic acid was a little bit better at forty three percent. The PFS is fairly similar. The duration of response, I think, was the one thing where sotorasib was a little bit better. But kind of just taking a step back, I think the drugs are you know fairly similar, which is I mean great for us to have something new in this space, let alone two new things. But I think what might distinguish them is one safety. And Jack kind of mentioned that the dose of adagracib seems to me, the starting dose might have to come down a little bit since there were a lot of dose reductions and dose interruptions. And, you know, having given sotorasib a fair amount, like in just in clinical practice now, I would say my patients have tolerated it fairly well. So, you know, is that a thing? I would say that all of us medical oncologists have pretty good experience with dose reduction, right? Like electinib, I often end up dose reducing and I have no qualms about it. But it is a question for, I think, Maradi and and Adagrasib because if you scare away your patient when they're on full dose and, and you can't get them to come back, that's also not great. So that's one thing. I guess the other thing is just formulation, you know, sodoracid. I have patients complain to me that they are taking like eight tablets at a time for 960 milligrams. That's that's something that is inconvenience to them. But I think the other big things are brain metastases question. And I was very impressed with the data that Dr. Sabari presented. He even showed that there was some, he showed us some PK values in the CSF and there was very high amounts of drug you know that penetrates into the csf so i think that that's going to be huge i'm curious to see sotorasib subset in active brain mets and then i think just the last thing is how would we ever get these drugs into the first line right now for me i think chemo io still is first line the the numbers are still better for me but is there a way we get atagrasib or sotorasib into the first line and is it You know, is it the STK-11 patients? Is it in combination with immunotherapy? And I think that's where a lot of our questions still are.
0: Kathy, and I agree with you. I think the pill burden is quite large. I often get a message from my patients like, are you sure I have to take these many pills? And it's often like, even if you tell them, it's like, it is a big pill burden. And I think tolerability is also important. I haven't been as lucky as you are. I have, you know, significant transaminitis. And some of no, my patients mm. uh, with of acid, and so I hope that you know with dose reduction as we continue to be more familiar with the drugs, we can get some data what happens with the patients that do require the dose reduction. Yeah, as we're almost coming to the end of this podcast, Kathy, there was any other studies in lung cancer that caught your attention at twenty twenty two ASCO.
3: Well, I'm a big proponent of neoadjuvant therapy, and I was happy to see the Nadim 2 results come out in the other oral session, really just kind of re-emphasizing and confirming kind of results from Checkmate 816 as well. You know, So we're seeing in Nadim 2, we also saw that neoadjuvant chemo plus IO was better than chemo for PATH-CR didn't impede the feasibility of surgery and was tolerable. So I think you know that was a nice kind of study to to see and really has kind of these neoadjuvant trials have changed my practice.
1: I agree. That was a a good highlight that randomized follow-up to Nadeem and uh, while it did show the same results that that we really do see improvement with the addition of IO, also brought that PATH-CR rate a little more down to earth. I think in Nadeem, it was really quite high. Here, still impressive but not north of 60 as we saw before.
2: But Uh, you know, one point I would make about Nadim, and I don't think Nadim too, and it really wasn't something that was highlighted, but there were 29 patients assigned to the chemo arm hand who only had 20 of them undergo resection. This, I think, is a concern when the eligibility was 3A and 3B disease by AJCC 8th edition. And One of the concerns I do have, although I'm a proponent of neoadjuvant as a concept, is I don't think we should shoehorn too many patients who are dubious candidates for the OR into a neoadjuvant approach and then have many of them either progress or ultimately just not be optimal candidates. I still think we really need to be thoughtful about selection of who's best for for surgical versus the non-surgical approach is just not a terrible consolation prize. We've seen great results with Pacific and there's further work to do. And it doesn't mean that we should really inappropriately direct patients who are not good operative candidates to the OR.
3: Yes, I totally agree with you, Jack. I should have said that as well. I think patient selection is hugely important for these trials. And I would say that we shouldn't put patients on in the hopes of downstaging them. They should be surgical candidates, you know, at the time they present to the surgeon and we shouldn't be, you know, putting them on neoadjuvant trials just to surgically downstage and hope that they get to surgery.
1: Jack, before we close, anything else catch your eye at ASCO?
2: Well, I think if I'd briefly mention two, one is our colleague, Charu Agarwal and, and others at Penn had presented in the poster discussion, the work that they've done looking actually at overall survival outcomes for patients with metastatic non-small cell there who did or did not have broad molecular testing versus incomplete or no testing and, and showing that the patients who Had broad testing, had a better survival, and those who had the testing completed before first line treatment was initiated had better survival than others. This was one institution and retrospective work, so we can only take it so far. It's not entirely clear if there was something about the patients who needed to get started before the results were back, but I think it just underscores that all of our work on targeted therapies and the benefits of them is predicated on finding these targets and we really need to do better with that the other that i'd mention is not specific to lung cancer but dr guadamuz and colleagues looked at telemedicine use in the us among patients initiating cancer therapy during the covid-19 pandemic and demonstrated that the rates of telemedicine use were significantly lower for black under or uninsured patients those in non-urban settings and, and less affluent. And Dr. Volkes actually had some comments as ASCO president just highlighting that telemedicine is a great tool, but there is, and I agree with this, a risk that we are going to introduce new disparities e- even as we improve some others. So I think we need to continue to use telemedicine, but we need to be thoughtful about trying to address the disparities that we are introducing with it
1: good points. Let me close with just one last question for the three of you, actually. ASCO 2022, this was the first in-person meeting in quite a while for a lot of oncologists and for some trainees or early career investigators, this was the first in-person meeting ever. So what does that in-person component add to the experience? Narjus, let's start with you.
0: I think the in-person meeting has a lot of value, particularly for underrepresented groups in medicine. It's often that you feel like you don't belong in the community. You look left and right. Nobody sounds or looks like you. You look at the walls and everybody definitely doesn't look like you. So having an in-person meeting allows you to connect to people that have similar background and interests and feel like you belong in medicine. And I hope, you know, improve the retention of these brilliant minds. I had the honor and privilege to meet new Latinas and oncology that many of them verbalized, not only that was the first ASCO, but that sometimes the research and cancer health disparities or health outcomes are not seen with the same value other institutions that other research. So being an ASCO, finding other people with same interests and same backgrounds was priceless to them. I can tell you, I, I cry a few times because, you know, some of them were like, I was alone and I feel isolated until I go I got here. And I think we make a big difference being there for them and having that connection in person that despite meeting in soon, I think the human connection is is something that we all cherish.
1: Totally agree. Kathy, your thoughts?
3: That was well said. I mean, I totally agree. It's just so nice to be able to see your colleagues, the people you've trained with, your friends. I'll make a special plug for, you know, women in medicine. It's so nice to see role models on stage. And really, these last few years have been very difficult for everyone, but especially for those of us with young children, both, you know, moms and dads. And I'll say that a lot of my time was spent commiserating with my, you know, with my peers. And like, it's true. It's a lot of loneliness, I think, when you're just kind of by yourself on a Zoom screen and, and, you know, trying to watch your kids run around while you're doing telemedicine. So it was just a really nice cathartic experience to be able to discuss, you know, everything with people and kind of see women in medicine and those role models that you have right on stage.
1: Great points. Excellent job on your oral presentation,
2: by the way. And Jack, anything else value to the in-person component? Yeah, I really am reflecting a lot on this because... I think there's a lot that we do get from the virtual ASCO platform. It's very good, and in fact, one of my colleagues, one of our colleagues, actually stepped out of one of the live presentations because someone next to them was unmasked and coughing and was watching the presentations outside of the the meeting, which of course, you know, you can. Get that whether you are sitting at a table outside of the the lecture hall in McCormick or sitting at home. So, how much do you get from the live meeting if we're all watching a screen together? But I think the answer is there is a more memorable experience when we do meet up together, take our selfies. I mean, it's really a connection that's, I don't want to minimize and trivialize that part about the memorable experience of sitting next to your colleagues as the data are presented and the plenary experience of the extremely positive destiny breast 4 trial where people were gave it a standing ovation and there were people crying essentially as these practice changing results were there i mean there is a value to being there. And I think that the real value is in the interpersonal direct connections that we have at the receptions, in the hallways, sitting together as we can in the session. So it's, it's partly about transmitting the information, but a huge amount of the, the glue of it is the interpersonal direct interaction that can't be replicated through a Zoom screen.
0: So much to talk about it. And, you know, we can cover so much, but it's time to start wrapping up this episode. Jack, thank you for joining us.
2: My pleasure.
1: And Kathy as well. Thank you for taking the time to be with us.
0: Of course. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We hope you will tune in in the first and third week of every month to give us a listen. Don't forget to like the podcast and to share it with your colleagues, friends, neighbors. We hope all to see you, if possible, in Vienna, and we will connect in the next episode.
1: Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, www.iaslc.org, in our newsroom or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.